0: Ladies and gentlemen, damas y caballeros, welcome to Siempre Pa'lante. Pa'lante. Siempre Pa'lante. Welcome, mi gente, to Siempre Pa'lante, Always Forward a podcast that is culture-driven, focused on familia, overcoming adversity, and legacy. I'm your host, Girado Luis Alvarez. Gracias for listening. In this episode, we learn about our guest and the love she has for her family, humanity, and social justice. The positive influence her parents and abuelos had on her helped shape her passion and purpose, creating the inspiring leader she is today. Please welcome best-selling author, life, and career coach, Dr. Colleen Georges who is Dr. Colleen Georges?
1: Who am I? Mom is first. Jose and I have a 12-year-old son. His name is Josh. He is a musician. He's a piano player, saxophone player. He's everything. He's a good, kind little dude and just a fantastic human being. Again, I'm a wife. I think part of who I am is talking about who the people who are important to me are. So he is, dean at Middlesex College and a doctoral student who's close to finishing up. He and I met while we were both working at Rutgers. We were working with the Educational Opportunity Fund program and that's how we met one another back in 2004. I'm also a life coach and a career coach. That is the bulk of my career work. I am truly blessed. I spend my days having conversations with people as a job, which doesn't make any sense to me how I get to do that as a job. um, Because I love to talk to people and I get to help people with such a variety of different things that are going on in their lives. Career is the crux of it. But There's a whole host of things I get to work with people on. So I'm a life coach and a career coach. I am also a speaker, which all came by accident. I worked in higher education for the majority of my career, largely with opportunity programs, including EOF and the federal trio programs. I started a little side business in 2007 as a resume writer and a career coach. It started with resumes. And then my resume clients said, Hey, you know, do you do career coaching too? Could you help me with more like guidance on job search or changing careers or interview prep? And so I had been doing that with my college students for years and doing it kind of as like a hobby, <laughs> so, like the resumes. And so that was how career coaching came into play. And then my career coaching clients quickly said, hey, I know you're a therapist. Do you ever help people with life stuff, other stuff like health goals or personal goals or getting organized? And I was like, yeah, you know, again, I have been doing this with my college students for years. That's kind of how it all happened. And then the speaking was the same. I got called ironically, because I'm very much a believer in serendipity and just the funny places life leads us. Early in my business, I got an email from my hometown library who had absolutely no idea that I grew up in Saraville, New Jersey. She said, I found your website. We're looking for somebody to do a workshop on resumes and cover letters. I see that you're a resume writer. Is that something that you do? And that's how I started speaking. I was six months pregnant (laughs) or something like that at the time. And that was my first workshop, aside from the stuff I had done at Rutgers (laughs) as a professional. And then an author, which also, again, like I love this evolution of where life takes you. So many of the things that I do have been because someone asked and I said, yes. And that's kind of how my whole career has evolved. And writing was always something I was passionate about. I always wanted to write a book, but also early in my business, I was speaking over the phone with someone about the certification program for working with people over 50. In their career search, and the woman said, "You know, my colleague David, he's writing this book. It's like an anthology book with inspirational stories. I think you'd be a great fit." That year, another person reached out to me too. I wrote chapters in books and then published my own book in two thousand and nineteen, and I got to do a TED talk in two thousand and sixteen, which is craziness. <laughs> and I think, in general, you know, I would just say the other parts of my identity are. I'm a lover of animals and human beings and bugs and nature and all living creatures. I'm fascinated by maybe sometimes things that are not as fascinating to everybody. I could stare at like a pine cone or like water on a leaf or watch a bug in the grass and think that's really fascinating. But I think I'm just fascinated with life and all living creatures. I guess that's me in a nutshell.
0: That fascination with life and that continuous improvement, where did this all start? Your family played a big role and there were key people. Take us there to some of those key moments and individuals.
1: I'm very close to my parents. I'm an only child. Yeah, I'm still very, very close to my parents who are the two primary people who shaped who I am and how I see people and how I see the world, as well as my grandparents. I can say I spent a lot of time, especially when I was younger, with my maternal grandparents, and just a little bit about background of my family. So both my parents were born here in the United States in New Jersey. And three of my grandparents were also born in New Jersey. So my mom's father, they were like a farming family, but they lived in Fords, believe it or not, I guess there were farms in Fords, New Jersey (laughs) back in those days. It's hard for me to imagine this. Their family was Hungarian. I think he probably did have some of the language because I do think he grew up with some of it, but he never spoke much of it. There's certain things I think are so fascinating when I look back on the cultural aspects and language and cuisine and things like that from my grandparents. My mom's mother, Irish, also born here, her parents came here from Ireland. I think many of them probably in the late 1890s. And my great grandmother, when she came here, I think she was quite young, maybe 18, 19, 20. She was like an au pair. My great grandfather had been, I think they called it a barrister, but I think it's like a lawyer, but that didn't translate as it often doesn't. We know how that works when people come from another country (laughs) and the United States robs you of your education and career. So he did different work here, I think, in business. My father's family, his mother, my grandmother on my dad's side, her mom was from Ireland. And so my great grandmother on that side and her father was from Germany. But again, my grandmother was born here. But it was my dad's dad who actually was the only grandparent who came here from another country. He came here, I want to say, around the early 1930s when he was 13 or 14 years old, I think he came on his own. Other family members did come to the US as well. They came here from Greece, while I'm probably more Irish than anything else. I was always fascinated with Greek culture because when he came here, he worked in construction and in restaurants and diners to live. So he was a cook. I remember him cooking Greek dishes. So he's the one grandparent that I became genuinely familiar with like the cuisine, Greek cuisine, he made other cuisine too. And he did sometimes say certain phrases and things in his native tongue. And I think I was just fascinated with the fact that he came here as a teenager. Both my grandfathers didn't finish high school in order to kind of care for themselves and their family. I was always fascinated with Greek culture. And one things I found out, so my name is Georges, and that's my maiden name. People would ask me, that's Greek? And I thought, yeah, that didn't make sense to me. And so my parents and I visited Greece in 2003, I want to say it was. We never really knew where my grandfather was from. He said he was from a village outside of Athens, and he passed away when I was 13. And he was my first grandparents passed away, so we didn't get a lot of information about his background. But when we went to Greece, the thing that was so fascinating was Well, one, everybody's name was George. (laughs) And we asked, why is all these Greek people's name George? (laughs) Because of the Georges. And they said, he's like the patron saint of Greece. So all of a sudden it became like, so that's why. And so the name had a meaning. I never liked the name because his name was Serendopoulos. And when he came here from Greece, they changed it. He had family members that his cousins changed it to Serantos. And he changed to George's. And I always thought that it was like a non-cultural name. But I think when I found out that it had meaning, that was important to me. I spent some time also with my paternal grandparents before they moved to Florida. I was pretty young. I was in grammar school when they moved. But I spent a lot of summers with my maternal grandparents. They were really, really big figures in my life. Went on a lot of vacations with them. I often think about going to the Poconos and stuff. Of course, most important figures were my parents. I'm blessed that I have two parents who always were encouraging. They were first-gen college students, so none of my grandparents went to college. Only two of them had graduated high school. My dad was one of the first to go to college in his family, but he went non-traditionally. So when I was a baby, he went to Middlesex College and got his associate's degree in IT. And then transferred to Kane and got his bachelor's degree. So he's the first to get the bachelor's degree in IT. And he got into technology at what was Bell Labs at the advent of the boom in the late 70s. So I was blessed because he worked at a tech company. Whatever the latest technology was, we had it because he had to test it for work he brought it home. (laughs) That was part of how it was tested. So we always had the latest computers and technology. Yeah. And then my mom, when I was 13, she completed her associate's degree at Middlesex County College. I remember like standing on the registrar's office line with her when she was registering for classes back in the day. I love that I was very but where they told me stories about growing up and they told me stories about high school and how they met. and My grandparents too, especially my maternal grandparents. My maternal grandmother, I loved hearing all her stories about how she met my grandfather and how she was dating this other guy, but she met him like he was working at the movie theater. And (laughs) I love their stories. And to this day, it's like, I remember all the guys' names. I think they also taught me to be people who love other people. Who are genuinely good human beings, not for nothing, but democratic households. And (laughs) I think I always had an understanding of the importance of social justice through conversations and things that were going on. And when I would bring something home that was going on on the news or in life, I felt like both of my parents always really had deep discussions with me from the time I was very young, didn't treat me like I was a child, had very intelligent conversations with me. But that They shaped my understanding of the world and who I wanted to be. And from as far back as I can remember, I've always known that on some level, I'd probably do something with people in my career to help people. When I said that my parents taught me a sense of social justice in the 80s, that's not a term I remember anybody talking about. I don't know how long people have been saying that particular phrase, so it wasn't because they were talking the term social justice. It was about what was happening in the news or whether it was interracial relationships in a movie, whether it was an experience that I had. I remember being in a dance class and my mother being very angry. She's much more of a fighter than I am. Sweetest woman ever, but she don't take no crap. I remember even in a dance class, this was probably like the early 80s there was a girl in my class that was biracial and some of the other white women were talking crap. And my mother got all up in there. And that's what I remember. My mother did that all the time. Whether we were talking about sexuality or race or language, whatever it was, immigration. My mother was always someone who, when there was a lesson, I learned it. And I learned it right. Because my mother was always one that was never going to let you downgrade anybody in front of her.
0: What were some instances where you had a pull from these key things you got from your upbringing?
1: I teach a social justice course for the last like 11 years. And I went into working with Opportunity Program. When I had the heart to heart with her at one point about why I chose to do the things I did, she had no idea that there were all these key moments that she was teaching me something who I wanted to be. I remember she teared up or just straight cried. (laughs) One of the first moments that I remember, and because of her attitude, that was where I developed my own pride in being who you are and don't let anybody that see the ignorance or stupidity change that. In summer camp, my mom worked at the YMCA. I had this best friend that I would see every summer. I was always excited to see him I wouldn't see him during the year. I don't even know what town he lived in, but I'd only see him in the summer. And I'd spend the whole summer hanging out with him every summer, like summer after summer for many, many years. A couple of summers in, I was little, somebody who worked there said something. He was black. We were holding hands. And this woman said something about that. It wasn't nice. Again, there goes mom. She goes off. (laughs) It's talking about why does that matter? he's a lovely kid. Why would you even say something like that? My daughter is going to hold hands with and be friends with and love whoever she wants to love. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I remember having like a sense of pride and just being who you are and people are people. (laughs) And I think that it's at the stage really for later on having conversations. I'm a peacemaker. But, you know, I was that person who, if you said like a crappy thing or a crappy joke, I'll say something. I said it as nicely as I could as not to create too much, you know, conflict. But I said something I was taught to, whether it was about race, whether it was about sexuality. I feel like the feminist in me was always there, too. I remember my mom being like, never depend on a man. That whole sense of women's empowerment is something I very much remember from a young age thinking more about career than getting married and family and things like that. And that kind of came later for me. I didn't even know if I wanted to be a mom, even though that's the first thing I identified myself as is who I am. I really wasn't sure I wanted to be a mother until I met my nephew. And I said, met my nephew, because that's Jose's blood nephew. And I met him when he was about 20 months old, just under two years old. And when I met him, I fell deeply in love with him on site. I was like, if I could love someone else's child like this, wow, what could I feel for my child?
0: And now a word from our host, Giraldo Luis. Did you know, sabias que? I created this platform to share stories that are told straight from the source. Real people making a difference, carrying on family traditions, overcoming adversity, honoring and creating a legacy. People who take the road less travel, paving the way for others to learn and grow. This is what all my guests in season one have given you. It doesn't stop here, mi gente. There's more work to be done. This show will continue to provide an inclusive narrative highlighting all human beings who have a story that motivates, inspires, and makes us better. A story that teaches us a new way to look at things and how we can learn from it. Faith, love, and listening to each other will help us understand one another. Stand up for what you believe in. Fight the good fight. La buena pelea. Find your voice so you can tell your story. No one else should be telling it for you. Remember, siempre pa'lante, always forward. Now back to the show.
1: Josh was probably in maybe kindergarten or preschool, and I had him in karate a couple days a week. I would stay. I've always been nervous to, like, drop him somewhere, even now (laughs) at 12, but certainly not at, like, five or whatever. So I would stay. There was really only... Probably a couple of other parents that stayed, and I got talking to this one dad who I've referred to him as Karate Dad. This was in the couple of years leading up to the 2016 election. So I think white folks might make assumptions about other white folks and what kind of conversations you can have with other white folks. And this was a situation where this person was talking about immigration and talking about how we needed to get it under control, because again, all these animals and criminals and people coming and destroying our country and singing the praises of the individual that unfortunately we elected some years ago, who I will not call the P word. I think it surprised me because I hadn't had too many instances where that had happened, where Someone made that assumption with me and that I was going to be on board with the conversation. I was surprised at how I reacted because I've always been such a harmonizer. And again, now I figure I at this point been teaching this particular course for a number of years at this time, but I got angry. It initially began as like a lash out. I don't even fully remember what I said because it's just sort of an anger. I eventually had to realize that Karate Dad really loved how riled up he got me. And I needed to learn to temper myself because he just really loved that he could piss me off. But we had some interesting conversations over those months. It was over any number of things and certainly... Feminism and women. I mean, he loved to comment me on those things too. But I guess I realized at that point a couple things. One, I'm definitely not going to not say what I feel. I also learned that some people aren't listening. You can still speak if you want to, but you got to understand who's listening to you and who isn't. And I think that that's why the course has been so important for me. And Continuing to have conversations with people, people I know when we're talking about certain issues, people that I believed to be open-minded people, but maybe who I feel haven't been exposed to certain things or what they've been exposed to is limited, I've learned where and when I want to expend energy and what I should anticipate from that expending of energy. Karate Dad was probably not my best expense of energy because he was just playing games with me. What I learned was regardless of what somebody's doing and why they're doing it, we all need to say what we need to say and speak what we feel. If there's something happening that ain't right, and you know it ain't right, you need to say something. And what I say to my students is you got to be careful for your safety because there are certain situations where you don't want to just speak and then find yourself surrounded by people who could physically harm you. So we have to think before we speak. But we should never feel that our voice alone is not important enough, that what we do in our corner of the world isn't important enough, Or that some folks might say, one conversation, one person, why does it really matter? Well, sometimes it might really matter. I won't get into who, but I can think of someone in my life who I think was influenced by some of the things that we talked about and had some different belief systems. And it surprised me because I didn't know that person was really listening, wasn't sure if that person was really listening it was emotional for me when I realized they were listening and that it actually shifted their perspective on some things. So I always believe like I learned from my mom, you can't just let crap go on around you and not do nothing about it.
0: You pointed out some key things here, the listening piece, which we don't do enough as human beings. You understand who's listening and who's not listening, but it's also your energy. I'm sure there's not too many more conversations with the karate dad, right?
1: Josh discontinued karate. I won't get into that story, but no. (laughs) But I'll tell you, I had a client one time who did continue to work with me because I thought, well, if you don't want to work with me anymore, that's fine. I didn't say that. But over the telephone in a conversation, started to talk crap about his Latino colleagues. I was kind of holding my breath for a moment because I had that moment where I was like, all right, this person's a client. (laughs) And it was like, what am I supposed to do right now? And then I was like, you know what, girl? You just need to say what you need to say. What will will be? He's mad? Then you don't work with him no more. Whatever. I was like, that's not a cool thing that you're saying. I understand that you may have some feelings about your colleagues and some things that they're doing, but it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that they're Latino. That's really not relevant to why you're angry with them. I understand that you're angry with them, but it's not relevant. And then he apologized. He actually apologized. Like I say to my students, There's gonna be plenty of moments in our lives where we're scared and we don't make that choice. I've certainly had plenty of them where you don't know what to say or you don't want to be the person to rock the boat or be the problem or be the pain in the butt or the party pooper or whatever. But you hope that with every stage of your life that we have less and less of those moments and that we trust that if you're feeling it and you feel safe, that all you've got to lose is maybe that somebody's bothered by you or don't want to talk to you no more, or says something nasty to you. That's it. Again, if you're physically safe, but it's important because these are the moments that shape us. I think of my son, he always picks up on things, like especially things that he perceives as misogynistic. Recently, he was like, why do they say blah, blah, blah for men, but not for women? He's doing this all the time. And I think he picks up on it more than I do. And I teach this stuff. But he's present, especially during the pandemic. A lot of time the things I was teaching, he's sitting in the same room with me while I'm teaching it, right? He's listening to his father in meetings about diversity, equity, and inclusion. He's listening to his father talk about his dissertation about. Creating a culturally inclusive environment on college campuses. I know he is picking up these things, but sometimes it's mind blowing to me how he voices things and what he perceives in music, in television, in regular life, that he picks up on things that sometimes we don't even notice.
0: So, what are some of the things that you do to pay it forward to ensure there's a positive narrative?
1: I feel very blessed. They live in a state of gratitude at all times. I think with that, there's a responsibility to try to do as much good as you can where you can. We grow up with this idea that your identity is your work, that who you are is what you do. It's the first thing we ask people. You start dating somebody and they say, what does he do? What does she do? People ask you from the time you're very young, what do you want to be when you grow up? They don't mean what kind of human being you want to be. They mean, what job do you want to do? So I'm often talking with people who have selected something to do that doesn't make them very happy, that doesn't feel meaningful to them, that maybe is making them miserable, that maybe is in a work culture that's really unpleasant or even toxic, that doesn't recognize them and their contributions. And then, in part, maybe they're staying largely for a paycheck, which, of course, I mean, we got to pay the bills. And I'm not Pollyanna. I understand that you can't just walk away from something. You got to mix passion, purpose, and practicality. You know, I don't believe in just abandoning it all. I mean, let's make sure that we can take care of ourselves and our families and things like that. But there is a place where they merge. It does look different for different people. It doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. It doesn't mean that every person needs to be a therapist or work for a nonprofit and be a philanthropist. You could do that as an accountant in marketing. You can do that in sales. You can live a purpose and do something you're passionate about that pays you well and is practical, but feels meaningful to you in any number of spaces, in any number of organizations, right? And roles. But for me, part of what I want to be able to do is because I feel fortunate, I want to be able to help other people find that place where they're doing something that pays the bills, that feels important and meaningful to them, that they're doing work or working for an organization with a mission that matters to them, that they can stand behind, and that they're caring for themselves and that they're not letting work be their only sense of identity, that they are Treating the other aspects of who they are as important. I'm definitely a recovering workaholic, and I say recovering because it's easy to slip back into those habits. But I think it's important for us to nurture the other aspects of who we are relationships with our family, our friends, and just things that are enjoyable to you, your intellectual development, your passion projects, whatever that may be, your health and well being. And so I think in that way, that's really important to me. And then Certainly, with organization work, when I get to do speaking engagements to try to have people appreciate each other more in the workplace from all angles, from the top down and sideways, how we manage conflicts in the workplace and how we learn to discuss things but not let them brood and continue to poison us. In my teaching work, that's something that's so important to me to every semester have at least like 25 women who have each of them different gifts and passions and things that feel meaningful to them. We're talking about so many issues in this course. Each of them will go out there and do something about it. That doesn't mean that they're all going to be working for the UN or that they're all going to be an immigration lawyer, but it might mean that they have important conversations with people in their lives that they were afraid to have before because they didn't know how that person was going to react or, They didn't want to rock the boat, (laughs) but that they understand that those little moments are just as important as the big moments, and sometimes they're even more important. And the practice ground a lot of the time. That means a lot to me. During the four years from 2016 to 2020, sometimes that was really what got me through. I would think, there's 25 women in this class, Colleen, and they're all going to go out there and they're going to do something. And this is not going to last forever. And this is the next generation and this is temporary. (laughs) And during this pandemic, unfortunately, we haven't been able to because the local food pantry that we volunteered with is still kind of on hiatus. But you know, when Josh was five, he said to me, we were driving down 287. He looked out the window, and he said, Mommy, God made us such a beautiful world. Why do people throw litter all over it? I was like, stunned. And I thought, I got to find a way so that we can do a cleanup or something. So I started investigating. I saw that we had a local community cleanup in town, but that it had just passed. And it happened in April and this was May. So I was like, you know what, though? We should start volunteering somewhere. I said, let me see who lets five-year-olds volunteer. And it was impossible to find this. But then I did. Our local food pantry in Highland Park, it just so happens, again, serendipity, the woman who runs this program I worked with her at Rutgers. I reached out to her and Josh and I started volunteering there when he was five. A lot of folks would say things like, so nice that he does this. And he probably doesn't understand really what we do here. And I said, I think he does. I said, Josh, why do we come here? He said something like, well, before we started to come here, mommy showed me a documentary American winter. Mommy showed me a documentary about these people who had money and then they lost their jobs and they didn't have money anymore. And they had to go to places like food pantries. And that's why we come here to help those people. Something like that. He said, and they were like, he watched the documentary. I said, well, he got through the first 45 minutes. (laughs) He was five, (laughs) But I didn't want to go there without him knowing why we were going there. One way. That I thought it was important for Josh to perceive service as something that you just did, not something that was if you had time or if it worked with your schedule, that there's something that can work for everybody. You don't have to do it every day. This was every two weeks for like an hour and a half on a Wednesday night, that there's service opportunities for everybody, even for those who really don't have a lot of time. There are plenty of folks out there that don't but I just wanted him to perceive service as something that was a part of life. I hope that he does.
0: Tell us a little bit about where people can find the book, some of the highlights. Go ahead.
1: The book is called Rescript the Story You're Telling Yourself. The eight practices to quiet your inner antagonist, amplify your inner advocate and author a limitless life. I wrote this book because I had a lot of self-esteem issues. My college years, I say they were the hardest years of my life. There were many, many mistakes and things that happened during those years, but they were fueled by how awful I was to myself in my own head, always being very self-critical and feeling very defined by my mistakes. I'm no saint, not today, not ever, but always trying and learn the lesson that we're the only ones that can give ourselves the compassion that's really going to heal us. That doesn't come from somebody else. That has to come from you and within. I wrote this book because I've come to understand in working with clients and students that while I felt so alone during those years, like I was the only person feeling these things, dealing with these panic attacks, anxiety, a lot of self-loathing, that lots of people feel it. And that we don't talk about it because it's embarrassing. We assume other people got it together and they're okay. And there's still a stigma attached to going through mental health issues. Even sometimes talking about coaching and therapy, there's still a stigma. It's not what it used to be, thank goodness, but it still exists. And so I wrote that book because I really wanted to find a way to reach a larger group of people who maybe needed to hear how can you shift that conversation you're having with yourself? And I say also about yourself. We have to listen to the things we're saying to ourselves, but equally as important, we got to listen to how we're describing ourselves and our lives to other people that we're having conversations with. Because there's so much information in there, and we have little catchphrases. I was just speaking with a client the other day and she's always wanted to start a business. And i said, okay, let's start working on your about me page. She started out literally with, although I am not. <laughs> and then the rest of it was great, but it started out with, although I am not, those are the things that I want people to listen to. What's your although I am not? We've all got them. We've got a bunch of them. The things we say to ourselves and others about ourselves that keep us stuck wherever we are in a place maybe we don't want to be or that make us feel tortured, that make us feel crappy, that make us feel like we're not good enough for whatever, the job we want, the relationship we want, the anything we want, and that we don't deserve it or we can't do it. We're not capable of it. And so RESCRIPT is an acronym for release rumination, engage your growth goals, seek your strengths, (laughs) R-E-S-C, challenge catastrophizing, restrict regret, invite imperfection, pursue passion and purpose, and think thankfully. And so it's those eight practices in detail in each chapter to change the conversation so that you can really go after everything that you want for yourself in every area of your life.
0: Gracias, Dr. Colleen, for sharing your story. Your love for humanity and social justice is what we need now. The impact you are making is preparing each generation to make this world a better place. To all my listeners, don't forget to subscribe, rate five stars, like, and review the show. You can find us via Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Check the show description for more info on where you can find Dr. Colleen via social media. That's a wrap, mi gente. Season one of Siempre Pa'lante, Always Forward is officially in the books. What started as an idea fueled by passion has turned into so much more. Every listen, like, review, and post has helped contribute to the show's success. We have traveled around the world thanks to our listeners from the U.S., Puerto Rico, Peru, España, Brazil, Mexico, Belgium, Canada, Norway, Japan, United Kingdom, and Germany. To all my guests, thank you for believing in me and taking time out to share your story. You have inspired me and countless listeners along the way. Gracias, Justin, for capturing my vision for the logo and making it a reality honoring mi papá. Santiago for working your magic on the sound and production. Steve and Michael for always making time to provide guidance and support. Madeline for bringing fresh ideas and creativity to the show. To all the new friends I've made along the way that I've collaborated with or will be in the future, let's keep inspiring the masses. To my little coffee bean, Ariana May and my loving wife, Andrea, you are why I continue to make the impossible possible. Familia de Sangre Espiritual, you stand by me no matter what. Tati Sandy for being the best role models I could ever have. The Rivera Brothers for making me the most proud uncle in the world. Can't forget Padrino, the Primos, Tias, Tios, Navas, and Aranda Crew. None of this would be possible if a young couple never left Cuba more than 50 years ago for the American dream. Gracias, Mami Papi. Lo quiero mucho. Hasta la próxima. See you in Season 2. Pa'lante.